0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online.
0: It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level, too. So visit stripe.com tapiphone tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
3: I have never read an article on a rock drummer that didn't say they started playing the drums because of Ringo Starr. And the beatles every drummer that plays in a rock band that was born and alive in the 60s says that that's the reason that they're a drummer today now talk yeah. about impact so why does it have so much impact and relevance and why so much staying power because the music kept evolving and the band they invented merchandising they invented multi-track recording you know beyond two tracks four tracks and then eight tracks They, you know they invented all of the overdubbing techniques and, you know, what George Martin did with them on Sergeant Pepper and then just goes on and on and on. And, you know, a a rock band playing stadiums, you know, in the sixties, they didn't, they didn't have sound systems. When they played Shea stadium, they didn't have a sound system that worked for the stadium for the Beatles to play through. Ringo said he couldn't even hear anything anybody was playing because the electronics hadn't even caught up to the size audiences they were playing. So people respond
4: David, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I was introduced to you by way of our mutual friends, uh, Michael Roderick, and I believe Michael Shine, if I remember correctly. And they told me a little bit about what you did, and more importantly, about the people that you worked with. And uh, I think you and I both share this very deep love for for music uh, in common. So it was kind of like, yes, absolutely. I want to talk to this guy. This guy sounds amazing. uh. And given that you've built a career in the arts, I want to start with a question that I think is always interesting to ask people who have creative careers, and that is, what did your parents do for a living and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your own life and your career?
3: Wow. Well, um, I love the question because my parents are are such a huge part of my story, uh, even though they've passed now, but they were they were everything. So my, my dad was a meat cutter um, and my mom was a legal secretary. Now, that's a little oversimplified in both cases because the story as it really played out was, you know, my dad lost his job. But my dad comes from the Depression era, you know, like he as a kid in the Great Depression, he was, uh, you know, he found his love for meats and cooking and that whole side of things and um, and was like, you know, working in slaughterhouses for chickens and and you know, cows and stuff. I mean, it's really crazy. But in, in that day, you know, that's what you did if, you know, if you, if you couldn't, if you just had to make a living. Um, and it was the closest thing you could get. But as his life grew and he met my mom and was inspired to really take, you know, what he enjoyed doing to another level, he ended up getting a really good job um, at Hans- Hanscom Field Air Force Base in um, where I'm from in Boston and, you know, that area. And then he ended up losing his job, uh, and all his benefits through politics and other things. And he was uh, in his 60s. So my mom had, you know, was a legal secretary and then was a housewife to take care of us when my dad was working at Hanscom. And then when he lost his job, she went back to work. So now they're in their 60s. And I'm just getting into high school and I'm watching my parents, you know, my mom taking, uh, uh, you know, two two trains and a bus each way to work in the snow and sleet of Boston. And my dad doing everything from delivering pizzas to working in restaurants to whatever he had to do. Um, And it was incredibly impactful on top of everything else. But they were the most loving, supportive, nurturing uh, people, parents, just humans, uh, giving and that you could ever imagine with with virtually no material means, but yet I had everything.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah.
4: So when you see the fact that your dad had to go back to work at the age of 60, and, and it sounds like doing work that, you know, most kids in high school would have as jobs. Right. What kinds of thoughts did you have about your own career choices? Uh, what advice did they give you? Because I think that, as you know, from having built the career that you have, Building a career in the arts is no joke. You know, my dad and I had the conversation about a music major in in college, and he talked me out of it, not intentionally per se, but he painted a reality that made me think twice about it Uh, so much so that I actually changed my mind. And so I wonder in your own experience, um, what were your own thoughts about your career while watching your parents go through this?
3: Well, interestingly, my parents tried to do the same thing as yours did. They were, uh, you know, in this case, they weren't quite as successful uh, at at convincing me, but they were so adamant about don't get into music. Um, And what it did, even though I didn't listen, right, But, but I did listen to the message in the sense that it opened my eyes to things that were way ahead of its time. So as an example of, you know, just to give it some context, um, you know, they're they they they're married for 15 years, they can't have children, then they have my brother, who's three years older than me, and then they have me, and now they have this family that they've just wanted since the day they met, and then I get eye cancer, I get retinoblastoma at two years old, and now they're facing multiple traumas in one shot, right? They, the possibility of losing me. Um, And then, of course, I end up, you know, getting through it, but they remove, you know, my right eyes removed. I've been blind in my right eye ever since. So the blessing in that one of the blessings is that I don't know anything other than seeing out of one eye. Uh, But it's, you know, there's so much trauma in it. You know, my lid was half closed. They had to fit a prosthetic. You know, I spent my childhood going in and out of hospitals and ocularis to fit a prosthetic eye with, you know, you walk into the office and there's other kids who are going through the same thing. Everybody's screaming and crying. And like, there's just so much, there's so much trauma and the drums, it turns out, and don't ask me how a drum set Ended up in my house at eighteen months of age, but it did. I have pictures to to know it as a fact. Uh, but I started playing the drums, and right before I got retinoblastoma, and so then after I got it, it became something that was a real refuge for all of us. And my parents never in a million years thought that would turn into becoming a major part of my passion and, of course, my entire life. They just saw it as well. This is comforting our son, and they loved me so much and showed me so much love that um, that they encouraged it. But then, of course, as the years go on, and now I'm taking lessons, and now I have my own drum kit, and now I'm just, like starting playing in bands. Now I'm at 12 years old, and I'm playing in bands. I'm booking the bands. I start booking them. I start putting the bands together. Like All of these things that become really fundamental components that will grow, of course, quite tremendously in the years, but at that time were elements of how things will play out on multi million dollar levels instead of $75 for all four guys and you split it. But so many of the ideas and the concepts and the actions were starting to develop at that young age. Now, if my parents are seeing me in high school playing gigs all the time and starting to get concerned, like you're gonna, you know, you're gonna look, you you look like you might wanna be in the music business. I'm like, I, I'm studying with Joe Morello, Alan Dawson, Louis Belson. For anybody who doesn't know, what I just said for drummers, you know, that's the Da Vinci. Those guys were the Da Vinci's of drumming. And this was very, I was taking this very seriously. I had every intention to be in the world's greatest drummer. Well, what I'm speaking to in your, in your question is that as my parents are saying, you know, please just anything but a musician, I'm not listening to that message because it's so in contrast to following my art and my passion and my calling inside, but I was hearing it enough to start opening my eyes that at that age, you would never have opened your eyes to naturally. You're just too young. Your brain's not developed enough, et cetera, et cetera. And, And they were able to do that unknowingly that I started looking around and thinking, and this is 15, 16 years old, right? But I've already, yeah. already have like five years of gigs under me, and I've been studying for almost eight years. And I'm looking around and thinking, well, uh, my life is going to be based around if this lead singer of this band stays in the band. Like that's about the most unstable thing I could ever possibly bank my life on. Like, you know, I could practice till I'm blue in the face, but if this guy leaves the band, I'm back to square one. And and things like that where you start to understand the dynamics of really being a full time musician, especially if you want to make it in a band. And then I'm looking around and I'm thinking, well, the lifestyle, you know, it's like at nine o'clock at night, my day starts. And then at four in the morning, my day ends. And then, and then I have to be in the next city, you know, 10 hours from then. And there was just so many conflicting things to what I felt in my heart I wanted to see my life look like. And that kind of awareness, even at the most basic level, to have that at that age, I was so far ahead. My parents gave me that gift of many. Mm, wow. Yeah,
4: it's funny because I, you know, as you're saying that, I can't help but think of the story of the kid who, uh, you know, I made Allstate band three years in a row in high school. And wow. you know, for two of those years, I was Everybody,
3: first- that's huge. What were you playing? <laughs> that's huge, Allstate. They only made it one year and they thought I was the best drummer in town. That's funny. So the tuba, which there's probably a lot more the competition tuba. for numbers, by the way. No, don't, no, no, that's amazing. Allstate's huge.
4: So the, the reason I, I brought that up was because I remember the, that kid who beat me uh, my senior year, who was at first Charles state, he went on to be a music major. He went to the university of North Texas, which is like this phenomenal music program. And I, you know, the I got in touch uh, again because of Facebook and I, you know, I, I saw that he went to Yale. I asked him, how's it going? He said, it's tough. It's incredibly tough. Uh, he said that, you know, he, he didn't sound like he was having this like thriving, you know, career as a musician. Uh, but one of the things I wonder, you mentioned that you went blind in your right eye, and this is something interesting. I, I've read about things like this, and this is a might be a really weird question. I wonder when you lose a part of a sense, do your other senses, like your sense for sound, amplify dramatically? Like, do you hear in a way that other people wouldn't hear because of the fact that you don't see the way the rest of us do?
3: I think yes. Um, my left eye has 2010 vision, and I don't think that's any coincidence. And and Absolutely. My my senses, especially my ears, for sure, um, I, I think are affected by that. Yes. I, I think it opens up other, I think it elevates the sensory uh, that you, you know, can achieve and have um, without a doubt.
4: So one thing I wonder is, it sounds like to me, you had a very sort of heightened sense of awareness and maturity at an early age based on The things that your parents taught you why do you think that is and how how have you how did your your siblings turn out differently like how did your brother turn
3: out differently than you based on on this upbringing well my brother um is uh has had an extraordinary life he has uh four degrees from harvard (laughs) he um i'm not joking he uh harvard undergrad harvard md harvard phd and a joint degree with mit called harvard mit hst which is their health science and technology degree and he's gone on to innovate uh, early detection uh, for cancer and has a company uh, that he's in the process of uh, building uh, very significantly and he invented a dye that you inject in uh, a cancer patient, and you look at a digital imaging system that he also invented, and the dye uh, attaches to previously invisible cancer cells and illuminates through the digital imaging system, and then you can remove them and save people's lives, because that's one of the biggest killers is that you in cancers that you can't see enough of the cancer, you don't really know where it is, and you either have to overcompensate and put patients through an extremely painful process, or you miss it altogether and they don't live. So this is a huge breakthrough that he's been working on, and he was inspired as being three years older than me, watching this trauma that actually had a huge impact on why he's chosen to be uh, an oncologist, and um, and you know took it seriously enough that he's achieved you know really great heights. And I think Mm -hmm. again that comes from my parents. The fact that I've been able to you know achieve a lot of success um, in my field, and he's been very successful in his field, and yet they. Those fields couldn't be more unrelated if we tried. (laughs) Yeah, I I can relate. I think my sister and I are kind of the same.
4: Uh, You mentioned teachers, and I didn't want to uh, get out of this conversation without talking about teachers because, uh, you know, to this day, I mean, you read audience of one, so you know this, like I say, my ninth grade band director has played an instrumental role in my creativity. I didn't recognize that until 20 years later. What are the lessons that you took from these amazing teachers that you worked with that you have applied not only to your, your career, but to your life in general and to the way that you live?
3: So many. Um, I, I think from the 30,000 foot view, um, and as you talked about in, in your book, um, it, it, it really, it's so important to have that. You know, I think just fundamentally, there's so many people that we meet that have aspirations and miss... The the part of it that teachers and mentors uh, are hugely hugely not only valuable but necessary, and my parents again they they instilled in my brother and me from the from as long ago as I can remember anything that education and hard work are what matter, and that principle is with me today as strongly as it has ever been. It's never died down. If anything, it's amplified. And so as an example of a teacher, John Woolley at Lexington Music Center, eight years old, my first private lessons teacher. He's not anybody anybody would have ever heard of, with all due respect, Mr. Woolley, Uh, but he was a local drum teacher at a local drum uh, music shop um in a small town outside of boston but my parents you know he was the closest person that taught drums to our where we lived uh and he was affordable and um they took me to him and i didn't have a drum set and he only taught drum set and uh he said david i don't understand this like you're gonna take drum set lessons you're gonna go home and what are you gonna practice on and my parents said don't worry about that mr Woolley. we have three yellow pages and one's going to be the snare drum, and two are going to be the tom-toms, and he can tap the bass drum on the floor with his foot. And they were absolutely right. And I did that for a year. And at the end of the year, when they saw and how well I was doing and how committed I was and, and talked to Mr. Woolley, because the only time I could actually play a drum set in that year was when I went to the lesson, because, of course, Mr. Woolley had a drum set. And um, and they would watch me play, and they were like, okay. And they, they saved up, and they bought a used drum set. Um, and that was my first drum set, and it was a huge like the there was a lesson within the lesson, you know, like okay i'm I'm not only taking lessons but I'm actually doing something with it I'm doing the work, I'm coming up with a routine on how when I practice and how I fit it into my schoolwork and my playtime and my family time, and those are all principles that still apply today, just on a much greater and more complex level, but it's still. It was still the same thing. And then as I went on and my parents were, you know, just relentlessly saying, you know, education, 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 uh, mostly they wanted it to come from formal, uh, you know, traditional education, but they still just as much encouraged it with the drums. I learned how to read music. I got into the Greater Boston Youth Symphony Orchestra, JBSO, which is the breeding ground for the BSO. I mean, you know, I was playing in the jazz band in, in school, uh, in high school, the marching band, the jazz band, uh, you know, the contemporary band. I had my own bands, out, you know, garage bands outside. I was gigging, um, and here I am in Jibso. Of course, as you mentioned, Allstate. Like I was going for all of those opportunities that were out there. Then I started studying with Alan Dawson, who's a world famous drummer and drum instructor who played with Dave Brubeck and many legends, and was a, a, a uh, major uh teacher at Berkeley for developing the drum program for years and um and that was of course another level so here are all these teachers that are coming into my life that are not only helping me with whatever craft it was that I you know as I wanted to get better on the drums uh and music but they were teaching me life lessons as well because as I started as my teachers got better uh and and more serious they're looking at the whole picture, you know. So Alan Dawson's not just showing me things that were incredibly important for how my drumming technique would improve, but he was teaching me about focus and you know making sure that I don't that I don't do drugs or drink and that I have my head on straight and and how to prepare for performances. Fortunately, because my parents were so strict about uh, the same concepts of clean living, I here I am in the music business. And I don't want to cut to the end of the story too soon, but we'll just say that you know, 25 years of my career has been working very closely with the band Aerosmith, who who Uh are infamous for being the Toxic (laughs) Twins, right? And I have never in my life done. I have never had a puff of a cigarette, a sip of a drink, or any kind of drug at all. And wow. so that, and and in the environment I grew up, I'm 13 years old, and I'm uh-huh. changing my stage clothes in a liquor storage closet. I mean, like it, I couldn't. I'm playing in bars for years, at six nights a week. I mean, I couldn't have been more tempted by those kinds of things under any circumstances. And here, and here it was. Was just I was just so focused and so just driven. To not number one to live the life that I wanted to with my art and my and and the things that I were inside of me, my passion, my music mm-hmm. and and the things that ended up evolving like technology, and I also didn't want I wanted the love t- of my parents to be able to nurture and give back and be that kind of person, be just a really good person on this planet, be aware of others and giving and and help make the planet a little bit better than it was before I got here. But I didn't want their work life. I didn't want to struggle. I didn't want to, to, to just ha- be in a place of lack. I wanted to be in a place of abundance. I didn't want scarcity. I wanted success. And I was so driven by it that from the age of 13 to 50, I didn't take a vacation. Wow. So, I mean, I really took my parents' credo of hard work and focus probably to too much of an extreme. And I'm not saying, like, this is what everybody should do, because it certainly isn't. But for me, that's just an illustration to share of of just how much, you know, I I walked the walk and how important it was to me.
4: Yeah. So, you know, obviously we'll get into Aerosmith and all of that Uh But that is an obsessive level of focus for somebody at such a young age prior to sort of development of the prefrontal cortex, right? Uh, And I think about it because I had components of this with my tuba playing. Like, we lived in an apartment, and my parents were like, of all the fucking instruments you could have picked, really? And my sister was just (laughs) like, God, I hate that you're so dedicated to this. Like, I would go and practice in our minivan when we lived in an apartment. That's awesome. And then, of course, there were the spit valves, which everybody hated, too. They're like, this is so ridiculous. Like, But... What I wonder is is why do you think at such a young age you developed such an obsessive level of focus, and, and also what would you tell parents who are listening to this about your own experience with this?
3: Well, I'll I'll tell them that realize your power because you said, Sereni, very profoundly uh, for me anyway that um, you know that your ninth grade band instructor, like when you looked back and realized. Just how much significance it had, and, and on so many levels. And, and, and that a similar thing happened to me. And so, what I would share with parents as a result of that, you know, now that I know it's, it's factual and not just incidental to my life, is that the power a parent has cannot be underestimated or taken for granted. The lessons that you show your kids, and they're not just the things you say when you sit down at the kitchen table, it's how you live. It's the example that you set. So it's a combination. It's it's what guidance you give them in nurturing, but it's also what they see and what they and they when they see that you actually are walking the walk and that you're not just saying work hard and then they see you every night just sitting around, but you're actually working hard. You know, my mom is an example, as I shared when she had to go back to work taking the two, you know, the two trains and the bus and all that. She was never late for work. She they had a retirement party for my mom a few years before she passed away. And, and this was at Ropes and Gray, which is one of the most prestigious law firms in the world. And she had a low-level job there. I'm not trying to exaggerate her position there, but still, it was, it was, it was I mean you couldn't get in the mail room there. And so she got this job and uh, they had a retirement party for her, which they do for every employee when after a certain amount of years that you work there. So you know, again, I'm not trying to exaggerate her role. It was pretty, you know, just administrative there. But we're at this little party that they have, and um, and her boss gets up and and you know, there's just some of her coworkers, and of course my family, my, my my dad and my brother and me, and and a couple of friends, and very small, very simple. And but he stands up and he starts listing off the reasons why he enjoyed working with my mother. And I'd never heard any of these things before, right? Now she's retired. This is it. This is the, like the last day she's going to work a job in her life. Um, And, and, you know, it's just 75 at this point. And, um, and he starts saying, Rita's the only employee that, you know, that department's ever had that was never late in 18 years, or 22 years or whatever it was. She's the only employee that never had an assignment turned in late. She's the only employee that was, you know, and they just went down this list of reliability and responsibility values that was, didn't even sound like it was real. And this is someone who has to take, you know, trains and buses in her seventies in the, in the, in 10 inches of snow and and it's like that's walking the walk. And that was that that hit me so much. And it hit me all along. But that's when it really became clear like what was hitting me and why I was working so hard, because they weren't just saying, David, work hard. They were doing it too. And mm-hmm. I saw it. So parents have to realize the power they have and the influence they have. And and it works even if the parents ignoring the kid that has a huge influence like there's no getting away from it that what your role as a parent is it has tremendous tremendous responsibility of impact to your children and so take note of that and uh, and and act upon that uh, you know in a manner of how you want to see your child grow and uh, and the person you want them to become yeah are you a parent now uh,
4: stepkids okay so yes Okay, because I, 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 I wonder how this also plays out in your own parenting.
3: Uh very much so, and um, and you know, it's it's something that uh, I've done a lot of mentoring and a lot of um, just teaching in general. One of my companies, All Access IDA, which the IDA acronym stands for Inspire and Develop Artists, that's all about mentoring. It's all about taking uh, an artist at wherever they are and. F- understanding where they want to go and then taking them through that journey from today to their end zone. Mm-hmm. And all of that is entirely, you know, guidance and mentor driven. So the idea and the practice of mentoring and, um, and teaching is something that's very much a part of my life and of course extends to, you know, my own family. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I love that. I mean, the idea of inspiring and developing artists, particularly because of the
4: the, the people that you've worked with. I mean, I was just looking at, the, at the, your client list. It's, you know, Ringo Starr, Ozzy Osbourne, Kiss, Shakira, Rascal Flats, Sting, and, and a lot of other celebrities. It's funny because, you know, we're, we're having our conference in uh, April and the Rascal Flats version of the Tom uh, Cochran song, Life is a Highway, is actually one of our speakers. Like, I, I remember hearing that and I was like, you know what? For some reason, I like this version better than the Tom Cochran one. Uh, yeah,
3: me too. But that's, that's great. a whole
4: other aside. So, walk me through how you get from high school to this, because that doesn't seem like a straight and narrow path. Uh, like, how in the world did you end up getting to work with all these iconic people?
3: Well, um, transitioning from high school to the beginning of that, right? So, of course, where it starts, I in my pursuit of wanting to be a great drummer and in fact in my head the world's greatest drummer although looking back that was even as far-fetched as you could get but that's what I thought then and in that pursuit I'm doing all the study and do all the things that we talked about and I find technology as something I need to also learn as it pertains to the drums I'm, I'm playing in these bands and I'm you know like for instance, I'm playing a cover band. I'm 16, 17 years old, and I'm playing the part, and it sounds like doom, ta, doom, doom, ka. And I'm listening to the song that I'm playing, and I, he's playing the same groove on the record, but it's doom, kah, doom, kah, and it just sounds like huge, and all the space is taken up, and it's like fits the track perfectly, and it doesn't sound anything like what I'm playing. I'm like, what is going on here? So I. Realized in short order, well, there's a lot of technology going on here. He's playing the same part that I'm playing, but he's got all these sounds being triggered and all of this enhancement electronically. So I started to pursue that and I wanted to know, like, well, wait, I got to learn this. If I'm going to be the world's greatest drummer, I've got to know what's going on here. And it's fascinating anyway because it sounds so good and it's making the music sound better. So long story short, as I'm pursuing this this path of drumming electronics, we're in the mid 80s now, I fall in love with technology. And within two years, I can build a recording studio for somebody. And in that same period of time, I discover MIDI, M-I-D-I, Musical Instrument Digital Interface, which of course is the language of electronic music. And I get so into it that I become a full-time MIDI consultant. And I get my own 800 number, 1-800-345-MIDI. And I was going around Boston, just telling going to every show of every local drummer, standing on the side of the stage, asking them questions if they used electronics, learning about it, then going to another drummer that wasn't using electronics, asking them if they wanted to hire me to teach them electronics. And I was like, it was the slow boat. But what ended up happening is to, to really accelerate my career is I went to a local music store called EU Wurlitzer that had five stores, which in the 80s was a big chain. And I went to this gentleman, Gene Jolly, who still today is a legend in, uh, in music equipment retail. And he ran the chain. He was the president of the whole thing. And I said, Gene, I want to, uh, I want to work for you as your MIDI consultant. I want to be your in-house MIDI guy and he says david um you're not going to work for anybody i'm going to but i'm going to help you i'm really i'm um, i'm inspired by you i i love your you know the the effort that you have and i see you at the store all the time and i see how you're working around boston and i'm going to i'm going to promote you so you make up posters you do the work you put together the plan and i'll give you the outlet and he did it i put the posters up i got business cards, the phone number, the whole thing. He introduced me to all the store managers. He let me put my posters up as the only guy at the stores that was being promoted and being offered as kind of that, at that time, like the geek squad kind of guy. And my phone blew up. I had client after client. And the amazing thing was that every single client that called me had a different rig and they needed me to help them put it together. And I had never seen any of the equipment that I was helping them actually learn. And yet at the end of two years, I had a hundred percent client retention rate. Every single client rehired me and was totally happy with the work I was doing. And what I was finding is that I had a natural instinct for this. Like this really came naturally. I could literally sit in front of a rig with seven pieces of equipment that I'd never seen before and put it all together and then show somebody how to use it in the same two hours and, um, and satisfy them and bring value. And then that, of course, you know, very quickly uh, grew my abilities and, and experientially, um, you know, helped me evolve my career and knowledge. And in the process of all of this, I started to get more high profile midi gigs and pretty much everything that was going on in Boston was kind of running through me at that period of time. I mean, Elton John came to town and, uh, and, you know, needed a midi guy for a week to help him with equipment that, you know, he was going to have in the studio. They called me, I worked with him and, you know, things started to happen. And then, uh, Tom Hamilton from Aerosmith, the bass player in the band. Um, and of course, as I'm sure a lot of people know, all five members are original members. And Tom called me up and said, um, you know, I've heard about you. I have a little MIDI rig in my house. And I'd like you to come over and help me with it. And I did that and we hit it off and we ended up having, you know, like most of my clients, multiple sessions, you know, because, you know, you're giving them bite-sized things, you know, people who aren't fluent in this in one or two lessons or consultations, you can't, you know, really get it down. You need, it takes time. So we're doing that. And then he calls me up out of the blue sky one day after we had worked together for a few months and he said, look, I'm not offering you a gig or a job or anything, but. I would like to invite you to come and meet the band. And maybe, you know, the, they're finishing this album called Pump. We're in 1989 now. And maybe you could help. Maybe you can't. But at least, why don't you just come down and see what happens? Yeah. Of course, he didn't even finish the sentence. And I was, like, you know, driving some, in some direction, hoping it was Aerosmith's direction. Like, I was so excited. And so I, um, I go, I meet the band, and I never left. Mm-hmm. Wow.
4: Uh, so many questions come from this. So it's funny because, you know, chances are you've seen both uh, the, the the Motley Crue movie on Netflix, Dirt, and, and <laughs> yes. Elton John film Rocket Man. And I saw that too. So what I wonder is as somebody who is, you know, this close to sort of these cultural icons um, who are producing music that we all know, we all love, we've all heard. What do we not see that goes into all of this? Like, what is the reality of this versus the version of it that we get to see in a movie? And then, you know, you brought up being around Aerosmith and the drugs and partying. How in the world could you stay in that environment and have, like, gone this long without a drink or anything else? Like, how do you stay sober in an environment where people appear
3: to do anything but be sober? Well, those are great questions, really. Um, And the, the, the Aerosmith part of it, when I started with them... They were clean and sober. They were they had just started on the path of sobriety, so that that aligned. But there were many other rock stars and situations uh, that were as you know hedonistic as what you're describing. And um, it was tough sometimes. You know, I I never you never really know how tough it's going to be until you're in the situation because it just seems so easy to say, "I'm just going to say no." But when you're around people that are paying you and relying on you, and you're starting to build up a rapport, and then they do something that that is totally against your value system and beliefs, but yet it's going to compromise the relationship because they're going to take it personally, it really is tricky. And it can get really, really scary and tricky. And part of the answer I have, because I've been in s- so many situations that were a little dicey, is that there was a little bit of luck involved. Um, Uh, but, you know, I also stayed, I also stayed true to my, you know, my belief that, um, I just, you know, it just wasn't for me. I mean, I've been offered, you know, religions that clients have wanted me to follow that if I didn't, (laughs) I wouldn't work for them anymore. And and I had to not work for them. And if I said some of the names, people would fall off their chairs. Uh, and it's, you know, and, and it's, and then of course there's, you know, there's been drugs and alcohol and women and, you know, all kinds of things that, you know, you just, that just come with the territory and that answers the first question you asked, which is, you know, what's going on behind the scenes. It's really like nobody can imagine. Um, It's, you know, someone told me a long time ago, don't ever meet your idols. Mm. And, uh, and now I've not only met all of my (laughs) idols, but I've become close personal friends and collaborators with them. So, I mean, I (laughs) talk about the extreme and I can see why they say that. Mm-hmm. You know, with all disres- with all due respect to to the to the people that I consider, uh, you know, inspirations to my my career and people who I really admire artistically, uh, and in, in a lot of cases, have become, you know, really close collaborators. Uh, all of that being the context, I, I totally see why people say that because there is a magic to just experiencing the art component. Mm-hmm. And when you get behind the scenes and again to answer your questions see the just how different it is b- the, from what you get as the consumer from what goes on to dealing with the person themselves as well as creating the art, right? Cuz they're two different you know r- very interacting components to this process and so you got the personalities and the idiosyncrasies and the eccentricities and then you've got all of the hard work and the creative genius that needs to be put together and you know and and delivered to to the end user Um, and either of those and both of those are extraordinarily different than you could ever imagine the movies you mentioned um, you know, n- working with Elton and uh, being very good friends with Doc McGee, who's El- you know Motley Crue's manager and who's one of the stars of that movie. You know, I have firsthand information of you know what's what's an exaggeration, what's actually not true at all, and what's exactly true. Yeah. And you know, it's a whole mishmash in both movies yeah. uh, of of those three elements. But my point is that the just the the extreme nature of the world behind the scenes, like let's stay, you know, if we stay at 30,000 feet, it's, that's the bottom line. And that's really the answer to your question is that it's so extreme and so different from the daily life that most people have, even if they're wealthy and even if they have, you know, beautiful homes with servants and everything else, it's, this is a whole nother thing. This is the behind the scenes of the music creative art process is, is can be, so extreme and so different that you really you know the best thing that can happen to somebody who's in that business is really um being very clear-headed yeah. and very sure of of where they want to go how they see their role what contributions they want to make and and staying very true to making good decisions for themselves yeah. and that business will push all of those uh, you know those human elements to the extreme. Yeah. Well, I mean, I remember this in particular seeing the Nicky Six scenes in that movie, and I was thinking,
4: you know, this is like this is like a, he, you know, the, the the monologue was I'm the luckiest guy in the world, and I'm basically trying to kill myself. Uh, and one thing I wonder is when you see somebody, because you and I were kind of talking about this before we hit record here, right? Is that as somebody evolves uh, from a, a creative standpoint and they become more successful, suddenly you know, there are a lot more people who are affected by their actions. It was, you know, like I told you, I thought, okay, web, well, now we have investors, you know, a literary agent, a speaking agent, like everything I do or say is a reflection on those people as well. Like there's a risk of me doing something stupid, uh, as we've learned from many TV show hosts where their advertisers pull, you know, pull that pull from, from their shows because of the things they say on TV. And yeah. so what I wonder right. is as somebody goes through this evolution, right? So like part of me wonders, you know, like when when I when I saw the Tommy Lee scenes in, in movie, the movie, I was like, wait a minute, Tommy Lee was a band geek in high school, really? <laughs> like, and then he's sleeping with Heather Locklear and Pamela Edderson after that. Like, you know, that that's a pretty drastic shift. So I wonder what happens over the evolution. Like, do people change as a byproduct of this in a way that causes them to make such crazy decisions? And also do, do do those kinds of opportunities just like start to fall in their laps more and more? Cause I mean, I've read Neil Strauss's book, uh, dirt and I was like, holy crap, this is
3: crazy. And true. Uh, that, that book is, is even, is more true than, than the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, uh, it, the, the short answer is yes, it does. Uh, it does change people. Um, I don't think, and I've thought a lot about this. Um, I don't think that, People are naturally born and and in you know in, intuitively human uh, to to have that kind of adulation and adoration thrown at them. Yeah. I don't I don't believe that that's like a natural thing that that someone's made to be a god and or and someone is is made to have almost this robotic life to them you look at michael jackson as an example like and all the other craziness about his life aside as an artist you know as a, he's nine years old and and he's living the life of what a 25 year old artist would typically live so he's robbed of all those years and all of that development and all that innocence and literally just thrown into this regiment of rehearsal uh, you know interview prep uh, songwriting, you know, touring, like all these things that are really intense and, um, and not natural. And so once you start to get into that groove, and you really start to understand what it looks like, um, you know, you you hopefully have some really good mentors and, and guidance, so that you're, you're still having to deal with the challenges of it, um, and the schedules of it. Uh, but you're. Being guided and mentored in a way—it's one of the reasons again that I did all access IDA—is that it's you can help people because normally they're young people that are going through that. You can help them still have a great life as much as possible, right? I mean, they're not going to have a lot of time off, but they're going to keep their head and their feet on the ground, and that's one of the common denominators from the examples you gave, uh, and there's many others as you know that go along with it that. These guys weren't uh developed. You know, you look at Motley Crue, I mean, they literally went from the street to the stage, and then the stages got bigger, so the hedonism got larger, and their opportunities got wider and bigger, and everything was just it was, you know, it was it was all still a microcosm of what it was, just much, much bigger yeah. because that that was, you know, what the fame did is it amplified it and magnified it. So you amplify and magnify uh, womanizing and drug use and, uh, and, you know, late night living and all of these other things. And you, you know, it's going to look like that. And so, you know, that's something that I think there's a a much healthier, much better way to go down that path personally, not judging or dissing the guys in the crew, but the people that I mentor as an example are, uh, you know, my philosophy and approach with them is to, you know, have clean living mm-hmm. um, and not not take the fun out of it. I'm not, when I say clean living, like we're not eat. I'm not saying they have to be vegan and never have All a right. beer, you know. Yeah. I'm just saying, you know, you still eat as much pizza as you want. I'm just saying that the overall your mind is clear, your focus. Mm. We're not stripping anybody of their innocence or, you know, because again, part of the creative process is how you're living your life. And so you want to nurture that in a way that as the creativity is growing and as the artist is growing, they're not relying on drugs or alcohol as a part of their creative process. They're not relying Mm -hmm. on unhealthy things that become embedded in how artists create. And so we've learned a lot over the years, you know, think about it. Elton became famous in the seventies. We've learned a lot since the seventies. Look at how we've progressed as a society and all the things we've learned about human nature, the brain, the, you know, the behavioral patterns, the approaches you can take to improve them, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we need to apply that and that will help uh, elevate, um, you know, how artists are able to, to grow and not,
2: To get started, visit plushcarecom loss. That's plushcarecom loss. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best
1: friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance, United Healthcare Tri-Term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
4: Yeah. So let's let's talk about the the work itself. Uh, one of the things I wonder, you know, we're talking about audience of one here and Daft Punk is the example that, that we came to, how many of these people are, well, when they go into this, is it ever about fame or money or is it just for pure love of the work? And, and does that like change with their success? Like what happens? To
3: I that part think, of it? I, I think there's a, there's definitely, there are definitely people who, who are in it for the fame and the money. Um, but, but the majority of the people that I've worked with and gotten to know, um, are really truly they love they love the music they love the combination i think every artist with the, when you have music in your heart and soul and you just you live for the stage you live for the studio because it's subconscious but that's where you're sharing your art and putting it out to the world and in the case of music right which is so different than say a painter is you walk on a stage and 50,000 people give you instant feedback of how they feel yeah. about you and what they think of that song and it's so powerful that i it that i think that you know artists wherever they start with the love of music once you infuse the the feedback of you know wow what i'm doing is really great like people love it like you know you really have to have your feet on the ground um, and, and be able to build it from that. You look at the guys in kiss is a great example. You know, they've been together touring for 45 years. They're on their end of the road tour. Um, they're great guys, great friends. And, um, I've learned so much from them and you watch how they've built the band and there's so many lessons to learn from those guys. And here's a band in the early seventies that put on makeup and costumes And, you know, and then get out in front of a, of a club audience of seven people and six of them are yelling, get off the stage, you fags. And, you know, (laughs) you clowns. And, you know, this is about music. This isn't about some clown show. And, and within two years, they're playing arenas. And within four years they're the most popular band in America, and here they are 45 years later and they don't drink, they don't smoke. Um, wow. They have an incredible career, and my point is that they always kept Gene and Paul, the leaders of the band, um, who have been the you know in the band the entire time, those two guys, it's their band, and um, they, they really stayed on point. And with all the distractions and everything else, they just kept building and building and building, and it's a great blueprint for how to have a successful business. Even though it's all about rock and roll and and, and that lane, it applies to business. It applies to life. Like how, As all the fame's coming and as all these things are being thrown at them, a lot of which, of course, in the early days is brand new, they just Uh. kept their eye on the prize. And I can really relate to that because as as I've gotten more and more successful, and I'm not comparing myself to Kiss so everybody can just relax on that, (laughs) I'm just making a point that uh, as I've gotten more and more successful – you know, you can get more and more distracted and you can let things that you didn't ever have to deal with, uh, you know, throw you off base. But when you, when you learn from guys like kiss and you see that laser focus will get you through things, even as you're learning, and even as you're discovering and finding things that you might be, you know, way out of your comfort zone on, um, you don't lose those, you know, that progression. So your art doesn't suffer. It actually grows. And it's, it's a challenge. Is you really have to be aware of it. Well, it's funny that
4: you mentioned Kiss of All People because I remember I was living at my parents' house uh, in the process of, of building unmistakable Creative. And my friend Mike sent me Gene Simmons' book, Me, Inc. He said, by the way, fun fact. He said Gene Simmons lived at his mom's house in the early days of Kiss. And right. I remembered that so distinctly. I, that is, you know, like you, wanna, like you said, that is definitely – and I, I remember that book very distinctly
3: because I thought, wow, this is actually a book about business more than it is a book about music. Absolutely. And Gene's all about business. Um, But yet, you know, he loves the stage. And he's one Uh of the greatest performers the stage has ever had performers on. He's created this character, the demon. It's one of the most famous characters in the world. And I'm not talking about just music. I'm talking about like compared to Mickey Mouse and Superman and Popeye. Like people know the demon. So he's created Mm -hmm. this incredible brand. Paul's the star child. Right, and so they have these this, these characters, this brand, but it all is rooted very strongly around their love of music and performing music, and what a performance means to them. And specifically, they've said over and over again, "We created Kiss as the band that we wanted to see," and they mm-hmm. literally—that's their byline, and it's exactly what they've done and they said you know we we'd go to clubs we we wouldn't have any money and we'd go to clubs to to see an artist that we heard all kinds of things about or we listened to in the radio and this is in 1971 72 in New York and we go to the club and like we we've been listening to the song we bought the album we're so excited we go to the club and the guy's standing there with his back to the audience in blue jeans and a t-shirt and he mm-hmm. turns around when he feels like it and and he basically says to the audience you know I'll honor you with looking at you when I feel like it, oh, audience. Like, that's how haughty and over-the-top their perception of it was. And they just looked at each other and went, we spent the last three bucks in our pocket for this? Like, what the hell is this? And yeah. they, they literally, Paul said to me one day, he goes, he goes, we're Superman with guitars on. That's what we envisioned. It's like, what if you went to a show and Superman was flying around the room playing great songs? How would that look? And here they are.
4: (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Uh, One of the things that I wonder, and this is something I've been wanting to ask you throughout our conversation, you know, we've talked primarily about American artists and I know that you've worked with Shakira as well. How does this differ across cultures with your clients? Like, what have you seen as differentiators from somebody who comes from that culture? Because, you know, like in India, there's one guy who is like as famous as it gets for music. And he's a person that I would, Die to get on the show. Uh, there's a good chance you've heard of him. His name, his name is Air Rahman. Yes. And Air Rahman is like, basically he hates this label, but they've called them everything from like the Mozart of India to, or Mozart of Madras to like the Indian Hans Zimmer. And he is the go-to guy in India for everything. He's the de- definition of unmistakable as far as I'm concerned, because I can listen to any soundtrack. I can be like, yeah, there's only one person who could have done that. And, wow. you know, he's the guy in Bollywood for, a film score, like I always jokingly said, I want to write a Bollywood screenplay just for the opportunity to work with him. And so, I what it. I wonder is, you know, what this looks like across cultures uh, in the clients that you work with.
3: Well, that's a, that's a great question because it is different. Um, the so the Latin clients and Italian clients with whom I've worked are it's it's they're very expressive and passionate. Like the most expressive an American artist gets is where they start with expression. And then it just elevates and amplifies from there. So it's a very emotional environment and, um, you know, just everybody just really amped up uh, and expressing and talking loudly, using their hands and, and, you know, and reacting to when somebody sings a great part, you know, or high fiving. And it's just a very, It's a very very expressive environment, and the British artists it's it's uh, it's very proper. It's very much like um, it's not. It doesn't lack any creativity or you know anything like that. None of these environments really change as far as how talented and creative the artists are, but their approach is different. Like the British artists, it's just much more stepped and mannered, and you know just like it's it's it sounds almost like I'm stereotyping in a strange way, but that's really what it's like. Like when I was working with Phil Collins, you know, like uh-huh. he's just very calm, even, you know, polite. And, you know, you hear this beautiful British accent and say, Oh, let's draw that again, mate. And, uh, or Ringo Starr, you know, working with the Beatles, like, you know, pinch me, I can die now. You know, we're like Beatles. I mean, that to me is the Holy grail of, of, of rock bands. And, um, and you know, Ringo's just like, uh, you know, oh, did did you like that? Oh, okay. Well, let's give it a pass, you know, and it's just that whereas you're with Shakira and it's just like, ah, da, 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 like it's very like loud and animated and like, you know, everything is like, you know, let's 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 get it. Let's take it to the next level and it's and it's expressed that way. And then with American artists, it's it's very much like you would imagine. You know, it's it's very It's it's kind of almost in between, but just very culturally um, like it's energized, but it's not as as expressed as the Latin artists. um, But it's nowhere near as subdued as the British artists. So it is kind of right in the middle. Is that kind of American rock kind of vibe? Um, And I enjoy it quite a bit because the artists are all so interesting. You know, the people that I've worked with, uh, regardless of culture, are just. They're just such interesting people. Like to live to it's one thing that you that you admire them, but it's another thing to just see how they they just think differently. Their ability to create, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've been in the studio with Steven Tyler and he's coming up with parts and he's coming up with ideas, and you just think to yourself, like that's one of the coolest things I've ever heard. And like, how could that ever be topped? Like such a great moment. And then it becomes an iconic thing, you know, like a year later when it's released to the public, everybody's singing it or, or, you know, emulating it. And now it's like part of pop culture and you just watch that transformation and you just go, this is just incredible to, to see, but it all starts with that talent and that creativity. And then he does it again and he does it another time and he keeps doing it over the years. And you just realize like how special, these artists are. Uh-huh.
4: Yeah. Well, I think that that, that, you know, that raises a whole host of other questions. Uh, I think this is a question. You're probably the one person who can answer this question for me that I've wrestled with for a very long time. And, and my only sort of thought process behind this is, oh, they stopped being prolific. So how do you end up with Aerosmith and how do you end up with the Spin Doctors? Like, why do people like Aerosmith and you two stand the test of time? And, you, you know, what happens to their lives for example, um, I remember thinking to myself, "Oh, you know, like there are all these bands from the early '90s and, and late '80s, like you know, singers like you know, uh, Luther Vandross or Brian McKnight or Boys to Men, even." And I remember, you know, I was like, Boy, "Wait, Boys to Men is playing at our local casino? Like, what happens as these people, you know, because Boys to Men, no matter how you slice it, as far as I'm concerned, they're cultural icons. I am, I, I'm shocked that their relevance didn't, you know, last much longer. Uh, yet, you also have." you know bands you know for those of you who are millennials look this up on spotify but like the spin doctors or even tom cochran who we're talking about earlier like what happens to those people uh and and why do you get that as one outcome or crisscross and why do you get you to an aerosmith as another what's the difference
3: well there's there's a lot of different scenarios um that so another you know it's not it's not like an a or a b you know like you're either Mm -hmm. aerosmith or you're crisscross and the reason that you're one or the other is like you know this. It's it's yeah. there's no this. There's many this. Uh, there's no one this. And so in the case of why bands like Aerosmith and U2 have the staying power, I mean part of it is just the quality of the music and the and the consistency of growing the music. Um, but it is a combination. When you're talking about long-standing artists, it's a combination of the artists being very on top of their career and not letting other people make all the decisions and assuming that it's just going to last forever. Uh, if you're not assuming that, and you know that you have to be hands on and you know that you have to steer the ship and be a leader, then you're probably going to turn out much closer to the Aerosmith outcome than the spin doctors outcome. Um, so that's a very important component that I see consistently among the long standing artists is that they're always evolving. They're always their eyes wide open uh, you know, like I remember, you know, my, if you want to call it my heyday with Aerosmith was really the 90s, it was really like 89 to 2001. And I did the seven records with them and, you know, did all their backline stuff for the tours. And And in that period, uh, that period was, if you looked at what what the big moments were, and let's say in that 89 to like 04, it was, you know, yeah. pinball machines uh, with artists, and mm-hmm. Aerosmith had a pinball machine. How do I know? Because I did the sound for it. They had a <laughs> they had a ride at, at Universal, right? Which they still have, which we did the sound for. Uh, they had a um CD ROM, if anybody wants to Google what those are. You know, you used to buy CD ROMs and do like multi- you watch multimedia on your computer. Like that was, you know, cutting edge in '93. Then, then Guitar Hero came along. Lo and behold, there's an Aerosmith Guitar Hero. And I'm involved in all these projects, and I'm watching all these things, and they were the cutting edge, you know, pop culture cutting edge that could have just as easily not had anything to do with Aerosmith. But the fact mm-hmm. that those guys were on top of it, and that they were always staying relevant and always contributing to wh- wherever it was going, uh you know, and in many cases leading the pack and trying to push the envelope and say, well, if if you know if C D-ROM right now uh, you know can do mono audio and 15 frame video, let's do let's do 30 frame video and stereo audio. And you know, and then that would push the C D ROM manufacturers to produce better hardware. And so like they were always they were always pushing it to the limit. They they really care about you know, their careers and their contributions and they're very conscious of it. And although they have a think tank of, of smart people, they don't, um, you know, they don't rely on them for, for, you know, to replace their own voice. And I think yeah. when you find, and I can't speak for the spin doctors, I've never worked with them or, or met them. Um, yeah. I only, and of course I know, um, you know, the, the great song that they had, um, yeah, but the one example I always come back to because it, I, I it's one I wonder about. So, oh, know. it's great. Well, that song was just so awesome. Uh, yeah, it really. Was. Still I still can listen to it a million times. But yeah. the thing is, it, what happens with a lot of these artists is that they don't. That the, I see two things. If I had to take two things as the, uh, you know, as as, as why I think that that you become. Less relevant and, and less sustaining in, in your career, or, or not as able to build on it uh, as, as bands like Aerosmith and the Stones, et cetera, um, is that number one, you you let someone else take control. And number two, um, you do not push the creative boundaries. You're not mm-hmm. looking at your music and saying, okay, I mean, if you look at you two, is a great example. Like, yeah. you know, and Madonna is another example. Like, you know, you just they they invent a, a genre or a sound or a style and then it lasts for a while. And then everybody starts jumping on the bandwagon and want it to sound like that. And then they invent something better. Mm-hmm. And then they yeah. just keep doing it. And, uh, and the Beatles did, you know, the thing about the Beatles and for anybody who hasn't seen the movie yesterday, please go and see it. It's such a must see. Um, but especially if you like the Beatles, but even if you don't, you'll love them by the end of it. It's, it's, you look at that period of time, you know. I mean, it's basically like you know seven, eight years, and mm-hmm. they just produced this body of work that if you if you told anybody that it took forty years, they'd say, "I can't believe it." But the fact wow. that it took less than ten is just a once in 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 eternity, you know, occurrence. And um, and that's you know that's the magic of like why they were the Beatles is like just this constant quest for better and more creative and different ideas. And, and, and here's a band that invents so many concepts, you know, I don't think I've met a drummer. And I don't know if I shared this with you or not, Sereni but I became publisher of Modern Drummer Magazine this year, the number one drum magazine in the world. And it's one of my greatest, you know, accomplishments, personally, anyway. Um, and being, you know, that modern drummer was the Bible of drums, and I read every issue since I was a kid. And I have never read an article on a rock drummer that didn't say they started playing the drums uh, by uh, with Ringo because of Ringo Starr and the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Like every drummer that plays in a rock band from, you know, that was born and alive at the time in the '60s says that that's the reason that they're a drummer today now talk yeah. about impact so why does it have so much impact and relevance and why so much staying power because the music kept evolving and the band they invented merchandising they invented multi-track recording you know beyond two tracks four tracks and then eight tracks They, you know they invented all of the overdubbing techniques and you know all what george martin did with them on Sgt. pepper and then just goes on and on and on and um and, you know, a, a rock band playing stadiums, you know, in the 60s. They, they, they didn't have sound systems. When they played Shea Stadium, they didn't have a sound system that worked for the stadium for the Beatles to play through. The Beatles could, Ringo said he couldn't even hear anything anybody was playing because the electronics hadn't even caught up to the size audiences they were playing. So wow. people, people respond to greatness in art. And you can't fool them. You know, So Mm -hmm. that's why you listen to U2. Nobody has to convince you U2 is great. Just listen to them. And that's the thing is so many of these artists, they stop growing like that. So the public's listening and they go, oh, that Spin Doctor's record is one of the coolest songs ever. So what's the next thing they want to do? They want to go to the live show. Then what's the next thing they want to do if they love the live show? They want to buy the next song and they want to be just as inspired or more. And then all of a sudden they go to a live show and I am not talking about the spin doctors, So we're clear. Cause I've never seen them live, <laughs> but they go to a live show of a band and the, and the show sucks. Yeah, And I go, Oh, wait a sec. And you know, and then maybe they give them another shot Yeah, and they listen to the next single and they go, Oh, well this is, this doesn't sound like there's nothing like That's not as cool as the first song. And they call it the sophomore jinx, right? Well, it's more like, Just the creative, you know, the plateau has been hit and just too early. And then they listen to, you know, a third song maybe if the band's lucky or the artist is lucky. And then by then, you know, if you're not doing some really cool things, then the public, is it moves on. And now we go into 2019. Yeah. And the amount of content and the ability to consume is so much greater than it's ever been that you really have to go – beyond anywhere that that artists have had to previously to get your audience well i mean i think that's
4: why the message of unmistakable to me is is, i'm like this is not a matter of
3: um you know standing out it's a matter of survival yep absolutely i i love the unmistakable creatives one of my favorite names of 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 describing art. I know I shared that with you. I'm not just saying that because I'm on the show and and I've read (laughs) your books, et cetera. It's, It's really true. Like as someone who spent their entire existence before I even remember existing in art and creating, I really, really believe that when we're talking about that level of creating, when you've pushed yourself and you have the talent within to really foster that kind of output uh it's the perfect way to describe it is it is unmistakable creative and i always think of the sistine chapel because i'm just so blown away by what michelangelo did and it's just um and i visited it i saw it, and it's just you know uh it's just such a great example of of the pinnacle you know like what you want to talk about unmistakable creative they couldn't be described better and it couldn't be exemplified better in my opinion yeah so what happens to the lives of these people
4: after they fade out of sort of, you know, cultural relevance, like Boys to Men. You know, I think any of us who grew up in the, the late nineties, I mean, we associate boy bands and hip hop with boys to men. Like they preceded NSYNC and Backstreet Boys, but Justin Timberlake seems a lot more relevant in popular culture than Sean Stockman does. And it, part of the reason I because I remember I was trying to get some of these people as guests on the show. I thought, oh, you know, it'd be really interesting to talk to Sean Stockman because I was a huge boys to men fan. Uh, and so, so what happens to their lives, uh, after they've faded from cultural relevance?
3: Well, if they're, you know, if they've been smart about it, um, you know, they have a plan and, mm-hmm. uh, and they're able to, um, you know, they're, they're able to take, you know, where they are now, find peace with it and, and evolve. Um, you know, it's an interesting question because so many artists, the art is inside of them. And when you're making a living and getting the kind of fan base that a band like Boys to Men has, and then all of a sudden it's not like that, you've really got to pivot. And it's very, very hard to do that. And it's really hard if the band, and I don't know if this is the case with Boys to Men, but with a lot of bands, it's the case where they really were kind of on cruise control. Like they were creating and they were building, and then things hit big, and they weren't really involved in what was going on to make it big and to sustain it. So when it stopped, they they don't know what to do. They don't like. Well, wait a second. How did wh- wh- what just happened? Like they're they're really almost passengers instead of conductors, you know. And so that's that's the biggest thing is is I see is that when they finally land. You know, if they're if they're able if they're conscious of what's going on, and they're really taking note, and they realize that that every artist has an end, um, mm-hmm. then they'll have a plan. You know, like I don't know if anybody remembers Jim Neighbors, Gomer Pyle, right? I know I'm dating myself a little bit. <laughs> I was not old enough to watch him in prime time. Everybody, just so you know, I'm not that old, but uh, but I do know about him, and and I watched his reruns. And he was this character, Gomer Pyle. And in the 60s, he was, you know, just as, as big as Jay Z is today, you know, in his own world. And he, and he sang and he also um, was so Jim Neighbors was his real name. Gomer Pyle was his character on TV. And he was very, very famous in both. He had hit records and he had uh, hit TV shows. Um, And really just early days of that even happening. Like Will Smith is a great example of who would be today's version of him. And he, um, he, Gomer Pyle ends, Jim Neighbors records are done and over with. And I read a biography on him many, many, many years later. And uh, he is one of the richest guys living in Hawaii with an empire that you could ever imagine. He's like a Howard Hughes rich living this life of of a dream life. So he's not only so he's gone from being an international superstar to being a businessman living on an island with every luxury you could ever imagine and nobody bothering him because he's in Hawaii. Um, and you just wonder like what but he talks about how well I knew it was going to end and i wasn't going to turn into this you know sobbing addicted you know has been that just wallowed in the fact that nobody cared about my art anymore he said so i i figured i got to invest in real estate i got to find some place that i want to live and that i can make money at by in real estate took all the riches that he earned which were nowhere close to what he turned it into but he he was so smart and he turned it and he bought this real estate in Hawaii that, you know, went from $10,000 to $5 million. Uh, and he just did it in, in multiples and just had this great life. And, like, there's no real story of, like, you know, I had to live in an alley and then I, you know, found Jesus and all these other things. Like, he really had it together. And I think that the moral of the story is he he saw the end long before it happened. So mm. all he did was plan, plan, plan. So when it inevitably happened, he was already into the next chapter flying high. And it's a it's a really great approach when you're an artist and, uh, and you want to be conservative and you really want to make sure that you've set yourself up in a way that you don't have to struggle. Yeah.
4: It's funny because it reminds me of the the conversation I had with Colin Egglesfield, who's an actor who's been on like Melrose Place and all this stuff, and he's doing the same thing, investing in real estate. He said, I think that you don't realize. He said everybody thinks actors are like just loaded. And he said, it's like a 1% of people who live this like really glamorous life that you see uh on TV. So I have two other questions about this. Uh, one is, you know, when you know, I, I've always been baffled at like just the spectacle that a live music uh, event is. Like, for example, when I've seen Dave Matthews in concert, and it's funny because I'm not a diehard die Dave Matthews fan, but I love his concerts um, because I think he's an amazing performer. I think he brings in people that you would never think. You know, I think the thing that always strikes me as really interesting about the Dave Matthews band is like, wow, I didn't know that instrument could make that sound. Uh, but what actually goes into this? Like, What is the work involved in putting together a show that you know we get to see him for two hours? How many hours actually go into prepping for it?
3: Oh God, it's so much. It's funny. I was just having that conversation the other day um, because you have s- typically three to six months of prep, putting together the stage set, the crew, the itinerary, the routing. There's so many levels of it. And then after the three to six months, and, that, and that's for um, you know an arena level act. Uh, like Dave Matthews. And it's a little more time than that if you're at like a stadium level, and it's a little less time than that if you're at a theater level. But it's still, that's the range. Then when you actually go to do the show, and this is what I was talking about the other day that I'm referring to, is that it's for the artist to perform for two hours, it takes 150 people, and this is not including merch and not including concessions and the parking people and everything else. This is just to get the show To happen on a stage, it takes 150 people, up to 20 semi trucks, and 16 hours minimum to put on a show for two hours, and then you have to do it all over again as soon as the as soon as you hit two hours and one minute, and the band is in the dressing room, the clock starts again, and and tick 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 until 24 hours later, and 16 of those has been working. And the other eight will have been sleeping while the bus driver drives, because the bus driver sleeps while the crew's setting up, and then he drives while the crew's sleeping. So the the show's literally running twenty four hours a day with somebody, um, and uh, and it's just amazing. People have no idea how much goes into a two hour show, and and I think some of that is beautiful for people to just kind of experience like it's a movie, you know? Like okay, I showed up and I watched this show and I left, and that's great. But what you're asking to really look at the depth of it is, man, there's so much work and pressure that goes into not only getting to the point where the audience can sit there and enjoy those two hours, but even during the two hours, there's so many things that can go wrong. You have a bad mic cable or a battery die in a wireless mic, all the audience knows is, hey, wait, his voice just cut out. Or, you know, hey, what the hell just happened with that static? And it's disruptive. Um, and heads roll, people lose jobs, careers even. Um, and, uh, you yeah, know, there's a lot of pressure. So there's a lot that goes into it behind the scenes. Yeah. Well, I mean, it just echoes a sentiment
4: that I, I think I wrote an audience of one saying that, you know, as a creative, 90% of your time is spent out of view of an audience away from the spotlight. Like the spotlight is a
3: small fraction of the time. That's right. That's why I love the title because that's exactly right. And and that and so therefore, if ninety percent of the time is spent with yourself and not in the spotlight, there lies the challenge because yeah. that's where all the meat on the bone has to occur. That's where you need to have foundational principles and faith and values and creative output and a lot of good decisions and a lot of good planning and execution because the outcome is, is that amazing two hours but mm-hmm. the influences and the approach to getting there is very deliberate. Yeah. So I have one other question about
4: this. Um, and this is something that, you know, I've, I've wondered as I've gotten, you know, semi like no, and, and I wonder how this works at the level of, of sort of, you know, Steven Tyler level fame or sting level fame. How do their relationships change with other people? And, you know, because I, I remember I had this woman here who uh, had, was, you know, had worked in finance. She had worked for a lot of billionaires, and she said, like, they go through life. And she said, one of the hardest things is to figure out who wants to be in your orbit just because they want something from you. And <laughs> imagine when very you're true. at a level of, of sort of, you know, Steven Tyler, like, or, or even Shakira, like, that's got to be an existential clusterfuck. So, how do they navigate that terrain?
3: It's very difficult. Um, and most of them, Navigate it by keeping their inner circle extremely small uh, and, um, and and insulated. So it's very hard to get in. It's easy to get out, um, yeah. but it's very hard to get in. And um, and you really have to earn it. And you have to stay earning it. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of dynamics to it. So not only do you have to do a great job and and have integrity um, and contribute and get along with the person, of course. Uh, But you have to navigate all the naysayers and all the other people who are in the inner circle who maybe have different roles than you because you have two huge challenges in every one of these inner circles. One is the other people who are similar to what you do because everybody's trying to convince the star like, you know, I'm your guy. And the other part of the inner circle is a huge challenge are all the people unrelated to what you do that because they don't understand it, or they don't want some of the money or spotlight to go to you instead of them, they diss you and, and basically, Oh, what do we need him for? Or, Oh, what do we, you know, why do we have to pay a guy that much? Like aren't there a hundred guys to do that? Like it's all that kind of stuff that's always being chattered. And um, it's, it's really, you know, it's one of the things that I'm the most, I guess, if you wanted to say proud of even though I don't really think of it consciously in those terms, but I, um, but when I do, Kind of reflect on it. It's it's one of the things I always want to keep as a guiding light. Is that I ha- my clients stick with me, and even with all of those politics and dynamics, it takes pretty extreme situations for me to get ousted. And of course, it's happened. I mean, it's inevitable, especially with the the, the amount of clients I have at that level. There's no way to to keep them all, uh, but and it's all for political reasons that I've not kept the ones that I haven't, uh, but. For the you know the majority of them I have, um, and I'm and it's not for political reasons that I have kept them. So political reasons will get me ousted, like it did with my dad when he was in Hanscom. But um, but it's I'm not being kept around for political reasons. Um, yes, I understand the politics and I understand you know how the game is played, um, and uh, and and I'm able to you know fend for myself. But I always stay focused on value and con- mm. and contribution and yeah. always just look at okay you know when if i don't need everybody telling me every day how great i'm doing or this or that i actually would prefer not to get all of that i would much prefer to just do a great job continue to be hired and stay out of the way and just be with the be contributing for as long as possible and and when you look at 25 years with Aerosmith and you know I was with the Osbournes for 10 years and you know we could go on with you know this one for that long and that one for this long it's like it's all I really believe because I've had my heart in the right place and I've delivered the goods um and uh you know I think I think when all the smoke clears the artists are really looking at uh you know what does it sound like how does it work like what what did he actually do Mm -hmm. um but I don't want to uh you know I don't want to underestimate or uh, understate um the importance of you know how many politics are involved to, you know in relation to your question because it really you there's really a lot of very politically charged environments with famous people. Um and uh you've got managers and agents and lawyers and accountants and wives, girlfriends, assistants childhood friends that are, you know, still along for the ride. You know, you look at, you look at somebody on salary. It's like, well, what does he do? Oh, he grew up with them. Yep. Uh, okay. <laughs> all right. Well, all right. guess that's one way to, you know, take yeah. care of somebody. I mean, there's so many weird things that, you know, are going on behind the scenes from what you might expect. And uh, you got to be able to keep your head down and, and just go right up the middle and, and keep contributing and not get wrapped up in it. Yeah, I
4: think people don't see that. You know, often I think one of the things that happened to me in the process of, of building unmistakable creative is is that I lost friends, and you know I didn't ever think it would come to the point where I lost friends. And in some ways, I'm like, okay, where was I complicit? And others, it was like, oh, professionally, I've outgrown this person, and this is not the way I intended for this to end, but it did, and it was incredibly painful. I think it was one of the hardest things about getting up to another level was that, oh, wait a minute, I'm parting ways with people I thought would be in my life for the rest of it. Uh, And, you know, I said this, one of the hard truths about building a career in the arts is that along the way, you'll lose people that matter to you. And it's not an experience at all, but it's, you know, one of the, it's one of the opportunity costs of choosing this.
3: It really is. And it's so easy to say, but it is as hard as you describe it uh, at experiencing yeah, um, exactly. just you think, think you're
4: not going to be that person. Like you think, oh, I'm going to transcend this ability to, you know, lo- to, to you know, keep myself from losing friends. And you're not. It's amazing how how
3: quickly that happens. Well, absolutely. And you and I also think that you think as in addition to that, because that's absolutely the, one of the things. And I think another thing is that you start to think like, I'll be able to handle it. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I can do it. I've gone this far you know, look at all the success I've achieved, look at all the evidence that I can handle situations. But it, you really, it's so hard to, it's like, because it's not logical and it's not, and it's not what you wanted. Like you want to grow and you want to contribute on, on larger stages and grander scales. And you want the people that you love and, and are, and care about to be with you. And then when those things start to, you know, to conflict, it's really, really challenging. I've seen that derail people. I've seen people quit, you know, what they're doing, and and you know, it's, it can be really extreme. So yeah, you gotta, you absolutely have to stay very committed. You know, being an artist as we are, there is a certain amount of sacrifice that goes with it that's not taught. You know, when I was growing up, of all the lessons I've shared that my parents gave me, um, they they didn't say you know, well, because you do this, that all these other things are going to go away um, or you're just not going to be able to do them, you know, that that's a huge thing that you learn and Mm -hmm. um, and you really have to stay committed to it. I I remember having a mentor when I was in my teens and he was another really extreme personality Um, and similar to when I described, like I haven't taken vacations and all that. He was that kind of guy too. And I think that's probably one of the, between him and my parents, Work ethic. I think that's one of the reasons I probably got out of balance and went a little too far with with the work. But my point is that he would say to me, "I don't go to any anything that's not related to how I'm progressing in my art and career." Mm. And so you you know you have a birthday party coming up, don't invite me. You know you <laughs> you're, you're you know you get married, don't invite me to the wedding. Like that, he was dead serious. He just nothing would, even for four hours at a birthday party, he wasn't showing up because that was just four hours that he could do much better things with. He took it that far. And I think that when you, you know, that's the extreme level of sacrifice, but but the lesson that you can take from that and apply to most people's lives is, you do have to have some of that kind of sacrifice. You Mm -hmm. can't have every party, every event, every movie you wanna see, every everything, and have the time and the energy and the space to create, right? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, I feel like I could sit here and talk to you all day. This, is,
4: this has been just mind-blowingly cool. Uh, so Thank you. I want to bring us uh, to a close and finish with my question that I know you've heard me ask, having listened to the podcast. What do you think it is? Uh, particularly having worked with so many iconic creatives that makes somebody or
3: something unmistakable. Uh, I think it is having an X factor inside of you that you combine with such a burning desire to evolve and bring to the world that it, it blossoms like an amazing, beautiful flower that you controlled. You're the seed. You're the water. You're the soil. You're in charge of the growth. And then all of a sudden, you've got this beautiful, incredible outcome because you had the vision and the perseverance to take the talent, in this case, metaphorically, the seed and the drive and bring it to that level. And I think that's where we get our unmistakable creative geniuses.
4: Amazing. Uh, Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and uh, share your story, uh, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. I'm so glad that I got introduced to you. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and everything else that you're up to?
3: Uh, Well, my social media is all David Frangioni, just all one word. And for people who don't know how to spell Frangioni, it's F-R-A-N-G-I-O-N-I, not E at the end. And uh, my website's davidjfrangioni.com. And uh, one of my companies, Audio One, is audio-one.com and allaccessida.com. And I'm real easy to find. And uh, I just want to say that this is a real honor to have been on your show and to be able to share my story with your listeners. Um, I'm a huge fan of of Unmistakable Creative. And uh, thank you for having me. Yeah. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the
4: show with that.